Michael has asked me to take you through um, a quick synopsis of the Phaedra, which we'll be doing for 10 weeks there. And then what I'll do is give you an overview of Plato's philosophy and pay particular attention to his theory of the forms. So what I'll do is, yeah, I'll just go to about <coughs> 10 to 11, and if there's any questions then, is that okay? Because yeah. I sometimes find lecturing in philosophy that students will have questions at the beginning, and the more I talk, sometimes the questions get answered I, I as we go on. Does yeah. that make sense? So yeah. I'll just yeah. keep you through it and we'll see where it goes then. So as you know, and for, anyway, we've, I'll have to get over the fact <laughs> I keep looking at all my lovely images in front of me. It's the final hours, as, as you all know, of a philosopher's life, told by Phaedo and arguing for the soul's immortality. And he says to Cabes <laughs> to say to Evanus the following, Wish him well and bid him farewell. And tell him, if he is wise, to follow me as soon as possible. Now, it's not to follow him by suicide, because Socrates scorned suicide. It's to follow him into the next life. Because, as you know, one of the proofs of immortality is this uh, view of opposites going to opposites. So the universal pattern is life, death, life, according to Socrates. Does that make sense? Just like a sunset. You see the sunset, it dies, it rises. So that's really one of the views of Socrates here, of the four, some people call it three, it's really four arguments for the soul's immortality. And the, he also says, and this, these are his last hours of life, so it's kind of important that we see what a great philosopher says just before he himself dies. It's rather important. And he says he wrote poetry as he was listening to his dreams. So he was writing, he was listening to his dreams at night, presumably he thought they were important. He wrote poetry, presumably he thought poetry was important. And he asks us to cultivate the arts. So that's kind of interesting. And the main point is this, that a person who partakes in philosophy should be willing to die. Plato had said famously, philosophers make dying their profession. <coughs> Montaigne, centuries later, said famously, to philosophize is to learn how to die. What they mean by that is to detach from impermanence. Sorry, from, yes, from impermanence, from change to focus on what is unchanging, what is permanent. Um, so for, for Socrates, it's about grasping the essence of things. And what grasps the essence of things is the soul. So what death is, as Michael has been saying, is the separation of the soul from the body. It's a bit like what Epicurus said. When we are, <coughs> death is not. When death is, we are not. Therefore, death is not to be feared. It's a lovely syllogism, I think from Epicurus. So Socrates too would say death is not to be feared. And he looks forward to attaining wisdom, Sophia itself. You know the etymology of philosophy, philosophia, the love of wisdom. Sophon, the divine wisdom. Now his friends at this stage are impressed, but they have objections. So Socrates, what he does next is he addresses Cabes with an ancient theory that the living come from the dead things come to be from their opposites. For example, the taller from having been shorter, and vice versa. So his view is that life and death aren't opposites. They come from one another. So this first argument, and I won't go through it again because we've done it in detail, the first argument is called the argument from opposites. The second argument is the argument from recollection. And this is the doctrine, you know this doctrine of anamnesis. Anamnesis, recollection, the opposite of amnesia. So for Plato, our souls pre-existed in the Epikina, the divine realm, we're born, we lose all the knowledge we once possessed, and it's only by degrees through life that we recollect it. 
Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So learning is in fact recollection. Learning is in fact recollection. This is called the doctrine of anamnesis. And so what his view here is we recollect wisdom that was innate. That was not only innate, but was in our souls when they pre-existed. So he offers two categories, if you like. One is the unchanging forms. They are invisible, pertaining to the soul, pointing to the divine. Then we have the composite world, the corporeal world of visible stuff, which decays and dies. And Sebe or Sebes or Kebes and Simeas or Simias have reservations. They're listening to this and they're not, they're a bit nonplussed. And Sebes says that the soul is like a cloak and it may outlive the weaver, but surely it dies. At some point it dies. So he's putting this to Socrates. And Socrates says he is grateful. I was very struck by that because of, um, you know, hours before you're dying, just to be grateful for something. And he's grateful for these questions because they're making him think. They're pushing his mind on something that's far more important for him than his body that's dying. And of course, if we identify, overly identify with our body, then when our body is dying, getting old, we feel we're losing ourselves. And that's the, that's the great foundation of fear. Um, so he says that um, he's wondering why things are the way they are. And he says the thing is the way it is due to its adherence to the unchanging forms. What does that mean? It is through beauty, capital B, that beautiful things are beautiful. It is through justice that just things are just. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So he capitalizes these things. That something that brings along a thing will never bring along the opposite of that thing. Because the soul brings about life, the soul will never admit death, since death is the opposite of life. So that's his way of, of, of talking. The four arguments, and again, just to say them, we, we've done them in detail, the, the opposites argument, the argument from the theory of recollection, the affinity argument, and the argument from the forms, from the forms of life. And that's really the essence of the Phaedo. Is that okay so far? That's just a summary, really, of what we've been doing. Now, to talk to you about the Platonic tradition. The Platonic tradition is really, I mean, as White had said, we are born Platonists or Aristotelians. He says all philosophy is but a series of footnotes to the works of Plato. So really, Plato's philosophy is the basis of Western philosophy, Western thought. And the main idea, idea is his theory of the forms. In other words, that there is a transcendent reality. I remember when I taught students, one student said to me, Dr. Costello, you're saying that Plato is um, a realist. In another class, we're told he's an idealist. Which is it? <laughs> so it depends on your perspective. Like, I would read him as a spiritual realist. Does that make sense? Because for me, the transcendent reality is real. Therefore, Plato is a realist. But with somebody else, if they're an empiricist, he's not a realist, he's an idealist. So how he's labelled will depend on your perspective. So the main idea is this uh, view of the transcendent reality, the divine ground of being. And the theory puts forward to convince us of this is the theory of the forms. Now, I want to spend some time on this theory because I found it as a student of philosophy and then as a lecturer subsequently, I found and still find it quite difficult at times to really grasp. So the theory of the forms, they are not ideas in anyone's mind. So what are they? For Plato, they are objective truths, objective realities, not visible to the human mind. 
So if you're like my father, medical man who's an empiricist, an empiricist he'll say, I, there's the brain, where's the mind? I can't see it, therefore it doesn't exist. So you can't affirm that which exists with just the eye of the flesh. Does that make sense? The eye of the flesh, if you like, will just see empirical realities. The eye of reason will see mathematical truths. Like two and two is four is a truth of mathematics. It's a truth of reason. It's not empirical. It's trans-empirical. So if you like, as St. Bonaventure said later, there are three eyes of human knowledge. The eye of the flesh, which measures and sees and you know, feels, tastes, touches and smells. We can measure that. That's science. That's empiricism. There's another eye, which is rationalism. That's the eye of the mind, the eye of reason. And that would be the example there would be mathematics. But there's a third eye, and that's the eye of contemplation, the eye of transcendental reality. And if you look at the world through that eye, God's existence is as obvious as raindrops or snow to the fleshy eye. So what Plato's trying to do is, uh, and I'm sure if there's atheists in the class, they'll forgive this uh, opinion uh, of mine, and opinion of Plato's, but what Plato's trying to do is awaken us to the reality of the third eye, the eye of contemplation, the eye which sees the invisible world, intuits or grasps its essence, and then lives out the logic of that in a life accordingly. So the contemplative eye sees, if you like, in a British commas, sees these forms or essences. So. This isn't a theory in the sense you can argue with it. It's really a, an insight, a contemplative mystical experience. Uh, but it's also rational. Just because it's trans-rational doesn't mean it's irrational. <clears throat> so, um, oh, I have lovely diagrams in front of me about the forms. The forms are bigger than any of us. They are patterns for all concepts and things. <clears throat> and they account for the unity of all concepts and all things. For example, our ideas of justice can correspond to just things because our ideas and those things participate in the platonic form of justice. If you look at the cave, which I have a diagram of, um, in the cave, prisoners are shackled to the wall in front of them. There's a fire behind them, people are passing up and down, and then there's the mouth of the cave. So I'm shackled to this wall. What I see are the shadows of things being projected on the wall. So for me, reality is shadowlands. It's images. If I turn, that's the famous word, the turning, the periagogi. So it's not just a, a, a physical turning around. It's a conversion of consciousness. Does that make sense? It's a metanoia. So the prisoner turns and he sees all things in the light of the flickering fire. And he says to himself, all those things I thought were images are actually real things. So the prisoner has failed to see. But real things for Plato are themselves only copies and reflections of more real things. Does that make sense? Outside the cave. So the first point is we've knowledge of images of images. The second Ascendancy is knowledge of images. The third is when we go out of the cave and we're blinded. But the fourth is if we persevere, we suddenly begin to see all things in the light of the sun. So the sun is the symbol for the good. As the sun is the source <coughs> of visibility, the good is the source of intelligibility. 
As we see all things in the light of the sun, we know all things in the light of the good. Does that make sense? Yeah. And the Platonic journey is one from ignorance to illumination through different stages. And in a way, Plato's view is that we're all prisoners and puppets locked into our way of seeing things. But there's a whole world out there that we're not just getting. But this is the thing. That world is not visible to the eye of the flesh. It's only intuited or grasped with the higher, more comprehensive eye, the eye of contemplation. So the aim is to see the realities of which these shadows are shadows. So it's to see the greater picture. It's a door to more. And in Tolkien, for those fans of Tolkien, he's a place called Mordor. So I thought that was interesting. It's really, Mordor is a door to more. Now, the famous phrase from Hamlet to Horatio, there are more things in heaven, earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy, is absolutely true. The point in Platonism is moreness. That's the point. There is more, Plato's saying, to things than what we see of things. So if I was to sum up Plato's philosophy in one sentence, it's moreness. There's more going on. There is another reality, the ciphers and suggestions and traces of transcendence. Modernity is the opposite. Modernity, which uh, stresses reductionism, is really stressing lessness. There are less things going on. We're living in flatland, as Charles Taylor put it. There are fewer things in heaven and earth, in objective reality, than in all our philosophies. So the Platonic ideas <coughs> And this is crucial, and I'll be saying this a few times <coughs> in different ways. The Plato's ideas are not in our mind, we are in them. <laughs> it's a change. It involves a kind of psychological pivoting or pirouetting. Uh, does that make sense? A change of gear to realise we don't have them in here, we are in them. Methexas. This is participation. So Plato's stressing the participatory nature of reality. We are in the ideas. We experience wonder and we're moved to marvel at why things are the way they are. The first philosophical question, why is there something rather than nothing? Asked by Leibniz, re-asked by Heidegger. Um, why is there something and not nothing? So the first philosophical emotion, I guess you could say, is wonder. Plato said, to quote, to wonder is the mark of the philosopher. Indeed, philosophy has no other origin. And Aristotle said, it is owing to their wonder that men both now begin and at first began to philosophize. So we're wondering at the nature of being. And in a way, that's the difference between psychology and metaphysics or philosophy, that, not that all philosophy is metaphysics, but metaphysics is about being, psychology is about behaving, the world of becoming. And there are two worlds for Plato, the visible world of change and corruption, the invisible world of enduring forms, of unchanging being. So the three points I want to highlight are these, the following. It means that what the Greeks call logos exists. Logos for the Greeks is order. Now, when Plato talks about order, he means ordering our being, getting ourselves together, being in sync with the self. For him, happiness is based on harmony, the harmony of the three parts of the person. 
So in a very real sense, the human being or the being is in harmony. He's a unity in diversity, a unity in multiplicity. And reality is intelligible to the mind for Plato. What is it has real answers. Being is open to reason and reason to being. Now the second point is this for Plato, there are universals. There are universals, essences, as well as particulars. Let me give you concrete examples. Redness is as real as a red chair. It means that when two or more things of the same quality, the quality is as real as the things, and also independent of the things. Give you a concrete example. If all holy men disappeared, holiness would still be, and redness would still be, though nowhere in the universe. It would exist as a, an idea, as a form. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, I'm not saying, if it makes sense to you, that's great. We'll hopefully keep making sense. It doesn't mean you have to agree with it. So we can reject this. We can say, we can say look, this is poppycock. Because it's not a theory that you can almost argue with. It's an, almost a, a mystical intuition by Plato. So the third view is this, that visible, concrete things, like us and chairs, they are images or copies or reflections. And this is called the doctrine of mimesis. Think of mime, mimesis. To mime out is to imitate. So through mimesis, or the doctrine of mimesis, we are images. We imitate our better selves, more real selves. So things are copies of their forms or essences. They are like them. And really, as C.S. Lewis said, I think there was a movie called Shadowlands. Uh, we, this is really platonic, that we are in shadows. So I think when sometimes when we get a lot of bad news or when things go a bit badly for us, to realise, you know, the, the Eastern say, neti, neti, not this, not this. The Stoics say, say just say to yourself, this is just a, a, an impression, not the thing itself. Epictetus says, just find out what is in your control, what is not in your control to change. Concentrate on the former. These are all little helps we have to let go of our idolatry. What's idolatry? Idolatry is when we absolutize something that is relative. So it assumes a gargantuan importance. And, and then it falls into place when you're at a funeral and you, you say to yourself, all the things I thought were important for instance, I crashed my car last week, somebody else's fault, and he fled the scene, and I'm still a bit preoccupied with that. But in the overall scheme of things, I didn't die, he didn't die, no one died. So if you look at things, subspecie eternitatis, under the auspices of eternity, they all fall or dissolve into their relativism where they belong. So it's an interesting view, I think, that idolatry is when we absolutize something that's only relative. We mistake it for having the huge importance that it shouldn't have in life. So the whole world, Plato's saying, we see is an image of a world we do not see. Just as a painting is the image of an idea of the painter. So one way to understand this is that the painter is God and the painting is the world, even though Platonism is not a religion. But if you show a parallel to religion, it's almost easier to understand it. That's why St. Augustine is a good Platonist, because he comes along and he says that all the forms are ideas in the mind of God. So he, in inverted commas, had an idea of us and then created us. Does that make sense? So our essence precedes our existence. 
and existentialism says the opposite. For example, Jean-Paul Sartre comes along and says, we exist first. Whatever we do defines who we are. That's our essence. So really, the opposite of Platonism is existentialism. Existentialism says we exist, we define our essence. Plato says our essence exists first, and we exist after the fact. So we'll keep going on this thread, but are, are, you're okay with me so far? So there are three differences between the two worlds, between the physical world and the world of the forms. First one is this, that the higher, we're calling it, the higher world, higher realm, higher dimension is eternal. This temporal world is, this concrete world is temporal. Living things like trees come into being and pass out of being. We can see that through the senses, can't we? Things come into being things pass out of being. The second difference is this, just things are many. There's just judges, there's just teachers. Does that make sense? There are just therapists, just children. Justice is many. Justice, capital J, is one. And the third difference is, justice, the forms are perfect, but life isn't because it's infected by death, by the body, etc. And in our world, just societies are always mixed up with some injustice. We, we haven't a pure sense of justice in, in, in constitutions, for instance. Now, this is the question. Does anything more than Plato justify Plato? So you could all be sitting here and say, well, this is all very well. This is just the thoughts of a lunatic. Uh, or where, how is he persuading us? Or, or you know... Or is it just his opinion, his doxa? Aren't, you could say to Plato, aren't your so-called platonic ideas merely your ideas? How can they be part of the real world? So the modern view is the opposite of Plato. It's saying the real world is just the world we see and know and know by science. It's objective. The inner world of, for instance, thoughts and feelings is subjective. So there are two worlds, the world within and the world without. Both worlds change and are imperfect. Plato asked one question, what doesn't change? Now it's just worth pausing on this because this was given context by the pre-Socratics. In other words, those philosophers who came before Socrates, there were a number of them, Thales, Anaximander, Anaximenes, Heraclitus, Parmenides. And if I can just give you two minutes on these. Um, Thales came along and said, the earth is a disc floating in water. So he observed through the senses and he said, yes, all things change. Things come into being, things come out of being. But surely there's one thing that doesn't change. And Thales said, yes, it's water. So he names the apyron, the limitless depth, as water. Uh, Thales Anaximander comes along and says, it's earth, air, fire and water. And then Anaximenes comes along and says, it's air. And you can understand why they would say that, because Thales is looking out at the water, Anaximenes is breathing in air. So they're all, they're all trying to see what is it that just doesn't change. Is there something more going on? Heraclitus comes along and he says, the only thing that changes is everything. Everything is in constant flux. And he gives the famous example of the stream. Remember, I think if some of you were at my Ficino lecture last year, I drew this quickly. He said that um, one can't step into the same stream twice. 
It's not possible to step in the same river twice. Because the minute you go to step into it the second time, the rivers are new. They have flowed on. As he says, in the same river we both step and do not step. We are and we are not. So for Heraclitus, even though everything was in flux, there is an underlying unity. How do we grasp it? This is what he says. Nature loves to hide. What does that mean? Well, I, my senses tell me train tracks converge. Don't they? They seem to converge, but they don't. My senses tell me that's my friend, and I get closer and I see it's a scarecrow. My senses tell me if I push a pen in a glass of water or a stick in a stream, the latter part of it looks magnified and crooked. I take it out it's not. So nature loves to hide. I can't depend on my senses for true knowledge. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then Heraclitus says the next thing. When you have listened not to me but to the Lagos, it is wise to agree that all is one. So there's some kind of unity, not knowable through the senses. And the image he gives to denote that is the image of the uh, friction of the bow on the lyre. So just as music is composed of friction, the end, the end result is this unity. It's beautiful music. It's a symphony. You don't hear all the different parts. But in fact, that's what it's composed of. Now, Parmenides comes along. He's the father of metaphysics because he says something utterly absurd. But it's so fascinating because it's quite logical. He says that there is being and there is becoming. And becoming can only either come from being or from non-being. But what is cannot become because it cannot become what it is. <laughs> what is not cannot become because from nothing, nothing can become. Therefore, becoming is impossible. Right? What is cannot become because it cannot become what it already is. What is not cannot become because from nothing, nothing can become. Therefore, becoming is impossible. Now, that's all great, you could say, but we're all aware when we look in the mirror over the last 10, 20 years, we're all changing all the time. The trees out there are changing. So what's wrong with what Parmenides said? Well, he got one bit right, nothing comes from nothing, although even that's being questioned in quantum mechanics, the level of subatomic particles. The first bit, what is cannot become, because it cannot become what it is. Aristotle came along and said, Parmenides, you got it wrong, because for you, being is indivisible. But in fact, being can be divided. You can divide being into potential being and actual being. Therefore, things do become. John the boy, who's potentially a boy, becomes John the man. So change from the butterfly, no, from a caterpillar. What, what is the butterfly? What is it again? A caterpillar, a chrysalis becomes a butterfly. A butterfly becomes a caterpillar. So a butterfly is a potential caterpillar, a caterpillar, an actualized butterfly. Is that right? Yes. Okay, so change is the transition from potency to actuality, from potential being to actual being. So that was Aristotle's thing. So in other words, and obviously Aristotle comes after Plato, was a student of Plato, but so just before Plato there was all of this discussion about being and becoming, what is and what is not, the one and the many. How can I be one while not <coughs> being many? All these multiplicities. So... That's a bit of a tangent over, thank God, you say. So what follows from this? What follows from this, according to Plato, is the following. That the good is either in the objective world of rocks or the subjective world of opinions. But Plato thinks the good is objective. 
In fact, it's harder than a rock. We see them with the eyes of the mind, but they're not in the mind any more than rocks are in the eye. Okay? Plato shows us a bigger world outside the cave. What happens is there's a different kind of reality, metaphysics. There's a different kind of knowing than just cave knowing, epistemology. There's a new identity, anthropology. And there's another kind of good, ethics. So everything changes. So Plato isn't creating this world. He's describing it. Now, there's two dangers. One is we can stand blinking in the sun and see nothing. And we're confused. Or, after a while, we see all things, but then denigrate the lower world. Does that make sense? We play it all down. So the choice is cave light or sunlight. We might say, though, the choice between believing that the world outside the cave is only subjective or believing that it is objective is itself only subjective. In other words, what your Platonist philosopher, philosophy professor tells me, rather than something that is as real as a rock. Does that make sense? So you could say, look, it's all just subjectively subjective. But if that's true, if our choice is purely subjective, not objective, then there's no real reason why I should believe any one idea rather than any other, including that idea. In other words, if there are no platonic ideas only my ideas, then no idea I have can ever be known to be either true or false. If mind is only subjective and reason only how my brain works, why should I think the computer or its software corresponds to reality? In other words, if reason <coughs> is only subjective, then that piece of reason is only subjective too. It's only subjective that it's only subjective. Okay, to give a concrete example. A skeptic comes along and says, there is no such thing as truth. Okay? That isn't logical, because he or she is presupposing the truth to be denied. Yes. Does that make sense? Yeah. There is no such thing as truth presupposes that there is the truth to be denied. If a relative says, all truth is relative. See the problem? That's a, not a relative statement. That's an absolutist statement. So they're saying all truth is relative to back up the relativism of truth, but all they're doing is actually refuting themselves. So you see some of the problems that begin to emerge when we begin to criticize Plato. <laughs> <laughs> so truth, well, let's talk about truth. Now, this is a tricky one, what is truth? Um, right, so for the ancients, truth is really my mind, it's adequatio, my mind corresponding to that which is. So truth is the correspondence or a, a alignment between my mind and that which is. Now, in modernity, it's the opposite. It's my mind imposes its own categories of thought on reality. So, for instance, your friend texts you and says, there's nothing on TV, as my friend did last night. And I text him back and said, there's nothing on TV for you. <laughs> because there was for me so he's putting forward this absolutist theory does that make sense but it's not it's his subjective interpretation so you can't let people get away with that in a way so reason must be in touch with objective reality sometimes at least because if it weren't we wouldn't have a standard 
for judging it. This is a problem. In other words, if there's no real money, we have no right to judge that any money is counterfeit. If there's no ultimate truth, we can't judge anything is wrong. So some kind of thought or some kind of reason must exist outside the cave. So surely we could say Plato was right about that. There is a world, he would say, of objective, eternal, universal truths outside the cave of our opinions, outside the cave of my experiences. Okay, how so? How do we experience this world? Well, our minds bump up against the objective and unchangeable reality of 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's unchanging. Or triangles have 180 degrees. Or you could say justice is a virtue. You could disagree with it, but it's a proposition. Or effects must have causes. So how do we make sense of any of that unless there's a reality outside of the cave by which to judge it? You would judge it or discover it in the world outside the cave through reason, not the eye of flesh. So in my beautiful image here of the divided line, which you can't see, anyway, I'll skip it. Reason for Plato is not cleverness. It's not about being a clever clog or even cog. Reason is wisdom. What is wisdom? Understanding. Understanding what? Understanding the forms. Insight into the forms. And if you've done the divided line, you know, the four levels of human experience, okay, the, the lowest level is second-hand opinion. Somebody tells you, somebody tells you. Second-hand reports of real things. The next one is direct experience. You have an opinion of something because you've experienced it. Okay? We believe our senses show us reality. We can't maybe prove it. Next level up, logic and maths. Truths of geometry. If-then reasoning. Higher one is direct knowledge of the forms. So that direct knowledge of the forms, like beauty and justice and love. So there are the four levels of knowledge. Now, the example I like is St. Bonaventures, who took it from Victor of Hugo, that there's three eyes. And I, I discussed this earlier. So put it this way. Beasts have senses better than us, don't they? You know, dogs can smell further than us, or cats can hear things more than us. So beasts have senses better than us. Computers do reasoning, that's, that's a big question, quicker than us. What can we do that neither cats nor computers can do? What is it we can do? We can understand eternal truths. We can know the essential nature of things that are. And that's what it means to get out of the cave. So, three worlds. The world of matter. This world. The world of mind. Okay? world of matter, subjective. The world of mind, subjective. And then we have the world of the most real, the objective forms or essences, according to Plato. Eternal, unchanging. This world that unifies the other two worlds because both reflect the same forms. So, concrete example. I know the ball is round because both the ball and my mind's concept participate in some form of roundness. That's that, how I can get it. Because there is the same red, both in the rose, in the rose, or yellow, and in my sense perception, I can see the rose as red. But what is redness 
It's not a rose, sure it isn't. Redness isn't the rose, right? Nor is it my perception of the rose. It's what I perceive in the rose. But the rose is only red. It's not redness. The rose has redness, some redness, not all all redness. That's why other things can be red. But other colours can't be red. Colours are themselves forms. I can know all three worlds, the forms, as well as things in the world and opinions in my mind. I can know objective truths that go beyond the senses. Why can I know that wholes are greater than parts? Because my mind is somehow in touch with that world of the forms. So we need to mind how we go, literally. Ideas like truth and goodness are produced in my mind, but not by my mind, but by the impact of something on my mind. It doesn't come from my mind, it comes to mind. We say that, don't we? It comes to mind, comes to my mind. So what kind of mind or consciousness knows the forms? Well, for Plato, there are five types of knowing. All begin in wonder. We're moved to marvel. When we look at at the creation, we're moved to marvel at why things are the way they are. Why are there things at all rather than no things? As Heidegger said, being is the uncanny other of the nothing. Uh, Which is a beautiful phrase. There's being and then there's the nothing. And we can be confronted with the nothing. That's nicht. La nada. When we are confronted with depression, when we look into the abyss and we feel there is the nothing, and very depressed patients who, who uh, come to, to me, let's say, as a clinician as well. So what kind of knowing is this? Well, there's kind of ordinary knowing. Ordinary knowing is unreflective. It's important, common sense is important, but it's often non-critical. So it's, it's the first level, it's the first two levels of Plato's divided line. The second is scientific knowledge. You know, the scientists will say, I'll only accept that which I can feel and taste and touch and hear. So it's based on measurement and testing. The second is philosophical, third, philosophical knowledge. That's knowledge of causes, knowledge of reasons of things. And the last one is the contemplation of truth for its own sake. If you're just just sitting, doing nothing, well, how does everybody know you're doing nothing? Why aren't you, in fact, doing everything? You know the story in the Christian tradition of Martha and Mary? And Martha's there and giving out about Mary, just, is it Mary? The other way around, isn't it? Martha is contemplating, yeah. And Jesus chides her and says, she has the better part. Um, and then that's mirrored then at the, at the, um, the Last Supper when John is, lays his head on Jesus' breast. So he lays his head on the word, the word that was in the beginning. And that's the beginning of contemplation. So for Plato, the active life, the vita activa, must come from the vita contemplativa, from the contemplative life. So the final level for Plato, the fifth level of knowledge, is mystical experience of the ultimate, the ecstatic play of creation. And that's to know the absolute good, which is both imminent and transcendent. For Plato and for the mystics, that's the whole point and purpose of life itself. And we have, don't we, all the tracts and texts of all the mystics down through the ages that are pretty convincing. I mean, they're either lunatics, liars, or they're, they're, they've intuited something of the whole. Um, so, what is wisdom? We know from Socrates that the only true wisdom is in knowing we don't know everything. 
So we really have to, this goes back to the beginning of the lecture, you know, with Shakespeare's quote of Hamlet, we must realise this profound truth that wisdom is based on some kind of ignorance. We don't know it all. We don't have access to full truth. We live in a glass darkly, as Paul says. So the meaning of life, what Plato calls the sumum bonum, the greatest good, well, let me try and untangle that in a few minutes before we break. If matter or mind are all that exists, then my meaning is here in this world, with my mind or with matter. Or, if there is a greater reality than nature, then I can aspire to some sort of union with that, either here or after death. I can participate in the supreme good that transcends time. If I know the absolute good, then I can judge all relative goods by that standard, including my soul and my society. This is all according to Plato. So, Meaning is important. Meaning is in the world, but it has to be known by me. It has to be assimilated by my subjective consciousness. So meaning, the first two letters, me, M-E, are important in meaning. Yes, it's subjective for Plato, but the known is always known by way of the knower. Does that make sense? It's I who have to assimilate, and my meaning will therefore differ from yours, but both will participate in absolute meaning. So you have your subjective meaning, I have my subjective meaning, the meaning is the participation of all subjective meanings in absolute meaning. And that really is Plato. And that's why he wants to produce a, a society, not of fascists or communists, but of philosopher kings. You could say it sounds a bit like a fascist leader, but it isn't really, because a philosopher king is ruled. And remember, we did, we did was it a couple of years ago, Michael took us through the five types of government. Yeah. And you remember all that, democracy, democracy, mm -hmm. oligarchy. Yeah. So the philosopher kings, because the philosopher isn't this clever clogs, but the wise sage, he knows that perfect just, he knows perfect justice. So he therefore can judge between imperfect justices. Only the Platonist, only the transcendentalist, the supernaturalist can justify radical rebellion because he can only judge society by a higher standard. Not by my ideas, but by the ideas. If not, if he can't let God be God, then one of us has to play God. I remember my friend who uh, committed suicide a few years ago, he couldn't get over his mother's death. And he kept saying to me, where was she, where was she? And at one point, after two years of trying to help him, I said to him, that is God's business if he exists. It is not your business. In fact, it's nothing to do with you. Your business is to look after yourself and your father and move on with things. And that was the only thing he said to me later that had some effect on him. Ultimately, there was things that happened later which brought him down. But So we either, either I have done everything or something has been done to me. And that is really where Plato's coming from, this universal. So the opposite to Plato, weirdly, in my view, is idolatry absolutizing what is relative. It's not that this world, I mean, there's a phrase, you know, Maya, illusion, that it's a veil, it's, but you could look at it, of course it's real, but it's real only relatively. It's relatively real, but it's not absolutely real. We're seeing just a slice, does that make sense? A perspective, just a little bit, a partial truth, not the whole truth, but Plato intuits that it's there. So I'll just keep you a few more minutes. There's a hierarchy of the forms. The highest is the good. Concrete example. A photo of a person. Then you've the person. Then you've perfect humanity. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. They're all slightly different, aren't they? They're all grades up. Mm -hmm. 
upgrades a photo, you'd prefer the person, wouldn't you, than the photo? And you'd prefer your person, your partner, your friend, to be really the perfect partner or friend. So there's kind of levels. So Platonism, Platonism is a philosophy, not a religion. But it's most easily understood by a religious parallel. So please excuse me for saying this. I'd be lynched if I was still in the UCD philosophy department bringing in God here. But anyway, either God created us in his image or we created him in ours. Either he wrote the play we're in or we're writing it. So in the Euthyphro, Socrates asks, is a thing good merely because the gods love it or do they love it because it is good? And Euthyphro thinks the first and Socrates thinks the second. So Socratic reasoning is an argument proves its conclusion if A, the terms are clear, B, the premises are true, and C, the logic is valid. So Socrates <coughs> works like a syllogism. You know syllogism? Syllogism is a form of reasoning in which from two propositions called the premises and having a common or middle term, a third proposition is produced from which the middle term is absent. So for example, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. That follows, doesn't it? Yep. But if I said to you, the Statue of Liberty is in Madrid, Madrid is in Spain, therefore the Statue of Liberty is in Spain, that's a logic, logically, a lo it's logical, but it's not valid because it's based on a faulty premise. Okay, so defining what is like that syllogistically is really what goes on in all the dialogues, the 30 of them or whatever. How do we define what is? <coughs> By definition. A definition extrapolates the essence of things, right? Whereas examples express the particularity of the things. So what is X? What is man? Aristotle's famous definition, man is a rational animal. So uh, they always seek more than the terms themselves. If you take all Plato's, uh, some of Plato's dialogues, the Lacques, what is courage? The Lysis, what is friendship? The Mino, what is teaching? The Republic, what is justice? The Philippus, what is pleasure? The Theatetus, what is knowledge? The Symposium and Phaedrus, what is love? The Gorgias, what is it to communicate? Parmenides, the one. Cratylus is about language. The Timaeus of the Timaeus is about creation, cosmology. Very difficult one. The laws is great as well. So, if we ask one question, what is love? For Plato, love is... To ask that question, what is love, is to ask the question of its quiddity. Quiddest. What is it? It's whatness. So I remember when my parents are now, they're both 79, and when my mother was 70, my father read out a beautiful poem by Yeats. You know that one? Some love the, ch the, changing, the, cha the unchanging soul in you as much as the pleasures of your changing face. Uh, I can't remember the whole the thing. It's beautiful. Soul. The pilgrim soul in you. You know, so there's something in my mother, in all of us, that is more than her, more than her at 70. There's something in us more than us. And that is soul, or whatever we like to call it, essence. And that's what Plato's driving at. That's what he says draws us ultimately. There's something more. And all of the dialogue centers on what a form is. What is it? Quidest. What is the essence of love? What is the essence of friendship? And the last line is of the uh, apology. The apology is apology, his defense of his life. They say about Socrates, he was, of all men living, all, of all we ever met, the best, wisest, and the most just. So let me 
finish before we have a coffee. Am I okay to about two more minutes? Is that okay? Go ahead. I'm beginning to wilt. <coughs> right. What is this is a good one to end on, I think. What is Socrates' secret? Like wh- why is he so calm why does he say to his philosopher friends in the cell, calm yourselves and try and be brave? I mean, why aren't they saying that to him? How can he be like that? It is extraordinary. And Socrates believes he knows the secret. And this is what he says. You will laugh at this, but please listen. Now, and this is what he says. No evil can ever possibly happen to a good man in this world or the next. No evil can ever happen to us. Well, that's an extraordinary statement. And he says he's certain of it. This man who doubted everything is now certain of this one thing. What are we to make of this? Well, we have to make of it a number of (coughs) ways. That evil is only ignorance. That learning is only remembering. There's only one thing necessary, being good. And if you are, no evil can happen to you. But that seems absurd because evil is happening to a good man right now. Socrates is dying. So if anybody can say it, he can say it. So does he have any reasons for saying this? The oracle at Delphi had always said, know thyself. So Socrates came to the conclusion that he knew his self in truth. Your self is your soul, your inner self. It's not the body. And therefore, he doesn't mind vacating it. Wisdom is knowing you have no wisdom. Only so far, the divine God has wisdom. The apology is Socrates' swan song. Myself is my soul, and therefore no man, only I, can make myself good. No evil can happen to me, no one can harm me. So Socrates' point before he dies is, they can harm me and my body, but not harm me myself. If he kills me, he is harming his own soul, not mine. So the self, with a capital S, was the first platonic form to be discovered. The form of himself, his essential soul. Now we think of the soul as a ghost or a cloud, something insubstantial. But for Socrates, Plato, the body is a cloud. The soul would be an iron. The body houses the soul. After I die, the corpse is no longer me, but my soul is. And that's why Thomas Aquinas, who everybody thinks is just an Aristotelian, a friend of mine wrote a doctorate on the Neoplatonic influences on Aristotle's thought, so he is quite Platonic. But Aquinas, who always referred to Aristotle as the philosopher, capital P, said about Socrates that he was the greatest of all philosophers. The dialogues show the way, indirectly. They're multi-layered. Each character in the drama represents something in the soul of all of us. Sometimes the drama of a dialogue ends with the discovery of a form. Sometimes it doesn't, like in the Mino. Philosophy isn't a subject for Plato. It is a love. And therefore, final 40 seconds, when you read Plato, lightning hits your mind. If you identify with all the characters, you can have an aha moment. You see, in a split sudden second, you see the what of everything. And then... You might even, like Socrates, look forward to dying, just as a prisoner looks forward to escaping from his cave. Okay, thank you very much.
more time. Yes. So what I want to do later is uh, Michael also asked me just to say, to say a few words on after Plato, where, where is everything going in terms of philosophy? Because it's just to give you a bit of an overview of what happens in the succeeding centuries. So three contractions uh, happen after Plato, three closures of the soul in a way. The first is nominalism. So nominalism comes along and says that there's just particulars. There's no such thing as universals. So, uh, I mean, you know, each of these things could take weeks to unpack. I mean, I feel I'm just sort of you know, throwing things at you. And, and anyway, sure. What can I do? Denial of any universal truths. Denial of essences. This is nominalism. And you can see how that kind of falls into scepticism. Therefore, what can we know? Is there anything that's universal? What is truth? Is it not just man-made and created and constructed rather than discovered or discerned? So nominalism leading into scepticism. The second one is positivism. Positivism is the denial of any universal values. So it's everything is just collapsing into subjectivity in a way. And the third one is reductionism. So Freud comes along and says, all love is sublimated sex. God is just a father figure. See what I mean? He's collapsing the higher dimension to the lower. <coughs> so that's a form of reductionism. And that can lead into kind of nihilism. Then nothing means nothing. Nothing means anything, um, etc. So Sartre's existentialism we talked about. Existentialism comes along and says, well, whatever about these metaphysical claims as to the being, let's just start with the fact, facticity, Heidegger calls it, from the fact that I exist and I will determine in my freedom who I am. And that's the thrust in existentialism. So it's really quite far removed from Platonism. But the great things in existentialism is they talk about things that previous philosophers never spoke about, like our subjective experiences of nausea and um, conflict, inner conflict. And so it's kind of psychological. And that never happened really before Kierkegaard and Nietzsche in the, in the 19th century. Um, so nihilism really is the conclusion of the denial of Platonism, because there's no, no, nothing outside the cave. You know the Matrix movie, we're all just locked in the cave and there's no exit. Uh, Sartre's play, We Clos, no exit. L'enfer c'est les autres, hell is other people. You know, he wants to collapse everything into sub pure subjectivity, being a monadology, the, the human being is a monad, locked into himself, encased in ego, and that really is hell. Hell is no exit from the, the small sweaty self, as Hopkins put it, the Jesuit poet. Anyway. And then we get to the, the view that, you know, life is, uh, signifies nothing. Life is just full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Um, but for Plato, the idea of the good is the ultimate reality. And in the Phaedo, Socrates tells his friends, even as they're mourning him before he has died, he says, quote, to fear death is to be unwise, because it is to think you know what you do not know. Namely, that something that death is something bad. Remember Seamus Hall saying that. But how do we know that it's just so bad? How do we not know that it could be all so great? It's a door to infinity. Who knows that death is not perhaps the very best thing? The very best thing. So. Uh, you know, I would love that to be read to me in my deathbed. Wouldn't we all? To have that uh, feeling of courage. It's from the Phaedo. So to fear death is to be unwise because it is to think you know what you do not know. 
namely that death is something bad, who knows that death is perhaps not the very best thing. Yes, indeed. Yes, sure. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of similarities because the truth of one discipline can't contradict the truth of another. So I, I'm going to sum up here. There's eight doors out of the cave, in my view. Eight doors to more door, to doors of more. Yeah. Doors out of the cave. The first is love. <clears throat> love brings us out of the cave because we cede ground to the being of the other. I mean, I really wish I'd, I'm looking at that clock taking away. The second one is a sense of the sacred. A sense of the sacred brings us out of the cave, out of the mundane into the mystical. And of course, then the trick is to see the mystical in the mundane. You know, Patrick Kavanagh says to see the newness that is in every stale thing when we look at it as children. So it's to have a change of attitude and therefore change of vision. Not for nothing did Kavanagh say to see the newness that is in every stale thing when we look at it as children. And for Plato, it's all about vision. As Iris Murdoch says, right vision, occasions, good action. The, the problem with the Nazis is they didn't see clearly. If you see a human being as <coughs> uh, vermin, then there's no problem exterminating vermin. They didn't see clearly. They didn't see the Jews as people, as themselves, to see the self in the other and the other in the self. So love, a sense of the sacred, inspiration. Plato talks a lot about that. Inspiration. Um, his analogy is, he calls it divine madness. Beautiful phrase. Uh, fourthly, coincidences. That's very interesting. I was reading um, in the Vedic tradition, the, the Vedic tradition, the view there that synchronicity has it as its, its source in the self. So things begin to happen serendipitously. Um, it's, it's the view there is that, you remember Mark Patrick Hedgeman, a friend of mine, he's a Benedictine monk, and he, he said years in one of his books that, um, that synchronicity is God's way of being present in the universe anonymously. <laughs> that things happen, things, doors open, doors to more open because you're rooted in the self, not in the ego, which is just a partial, incomplete, insubstantial, small aspect of our being. Um, it's what Viktor Frankl calls hints from heaven. You know the famous story that the immigration visa came, he was going to depart and his parents begged him to and he didn't know whether he should because they were elderly and he thought that the, the Nazis would get them. He went for a walk and he came back and his father was holding a part of the synagogue that had been blown a piece, to pieces by the Nazis and Victor said to him, uh, Papa, what bit are you holding? And he said, one of the Ten Commandments and I can see the symbol on it. And Victor Frankl said, which one is it? And he said, honour thy father and thy mother so that thy days may be long in the land of the living. And Victor Frankl, years later, said he was rooted to the spot and let the visa go. The following day, they were arrested by the Nazis and the whole family were wiped out, apart from his sister, who immigrated to Australia in the Holocaust. And um, what's interesting about that is that he, on his walk, had prayed for a hint from heaven. I think it's a beautiful phrase, a hint from heaven. And later, when I had an opportunity to meet the family, I was asking about this walk. And Ellie Frank, who's still alive, 92, a beautiful lady, his second wife, um, said to me that Victor said to her that when it happened, he didn't know whether it was just his conscience, you know, an echo from his conscience or God. And in his little autobiography, Recollections, he says, I am not stupid enough to dismiss it, nor wise enough to understand it. 
So there are the synchronicities we have to be on alert yeah. for. Yeah. Anyway, that's love, a sense of the sacred inspiration, coincidences. Fifthly, the arts. This was Socrates' last wish that he'd spend more time with the arts. Poetry, painting, music. You know, poets say things just in a few pithy lines that we, in a way we can't. Philosophers have to work it out prosaically. So poetry is so important. Heidegger said the poet and the thinker meet each other halfway in thought. <laughs> Uh, poetry is the prelude to philosophy. Nature. Socrates was always in touch with nature and he was also standing still for hours. I remember David Horne in one of his lectures in England asked, how long was he standing still for? One hour, two hours, four hours? What was going on? Extraordinary, isn't it? Um, and in the lives of great mystics, Buddha, centuries of Avila, the lives of great mystics show the door to more. So it's important, I suppose, to read their writings to remind us of this. Um, so saints and sages seem to see and live the higher world. Uh, they love all and bring light into the darkness. They're like platonic forms, or angels, if you want. And finally, the eighth one is death. Death is the biggest door out of the cave. And we're dying all the time. Birth is the first death. We let go of nine months of intrauterine existence. Moving house, you're letting go. All these little mornings until uh, the final uh, the final one, which is the, the final and the first. Socrates had such hope, which Plato made available to everyone, even in the absence of faith. So in my view, the dialogues of Plato are the best place to start to change your life. Plato was not a saint, Socrates was. Erasmus famously said, Saint Socrates, pray for us. <laughs> <laughs> Um, now, can I keep, will I keep going or I can, yeah. I can finish there or, um, okay. so there's a key word here um, and Eric Vogelin taught us this in the 80s new CD and the key word is K-A-T-E-B-E-N, Kataben. I don't know how you pronounce it, Kataben. And what it means is I went down. Now, probably like me, every one of you opened the Republic, the first line is I went down to the Pyrian Spring, isn't it? And, and I just thought it was, I went down. I was thinking yeah. geography. Yeah. And, and Vogel comes along and, and told us all uh, that in, in, the, in, in the, play, the allegory of the cave, I went down. It's the great symbol that runs through the entire Republic. I went down. It's the descent into the self, which you could easily miss if you were reading it as I was, as an 18-year-old in city. I was just reading it literally. I went down to the Pyrian Spring. But it's the great symbolism of Plato. There's always the descent into the depths, followed by the ascent into the light. And that's the Platonic dialectic. So the Republic is a symbolic form of the good life. And we live, according to Plato, in the metaxi, in the middle, in between life and death, um, angels and apes. We're in the middle. And the vision of the good, the agathon, is the point of it all, is the parable of the cave. So we see eros as a desire for the good, the opening words, I went down yesterday to the Piraeus with Glaucon, the son of Ariston, to offer my prayers to the goddess. So that's what Plato was up to. I went down, the great symbol from Heraclitus, the Logos. Remember what Heraclitus said, if, even if you travelled all the depths of man, you would never get to know his Logos. You'd never, sorry, you'd never get to know his soul. <coughs> so deep is his Logos. We are so deep. And the depths of which we come are, is the divine depths. 
and therefore the divine destiny. So this is where Plato's coming from. Life, death, life. That's the circle. Um, and to discover this, the word discover is to the cover, uncover all the excretions, <coughs> excrescences, to discover universal humanity, which is recognised by Plato only in relation to the divine transcendental reality. So the philosopher's soul is attuned to the divine measure of all things, whereas the soul of the sophist is attuned only to doxa, to opinion, rather than to truth. The periagogi is the turning around of consciousness so we can face into the truth. If society is man writ large, the good polis, the good um, city-state, is the philosopher's soul writ large. That's what Plato calls his anthropological principle. Um, Dis-ease, not being at ease, is the measure of human order. <coughs> so for a lot of humans, doxa opinion becomes their aletheia, their truth. If, we're, if we get stuck in the view that it's just my truth is the only truth. Subjectivism is the great disease, really, is that my feelings... I remember telling a patient recently, when she said, but my feelings are telling me... And I said, feelings aren't facts. Yeah. And she said, but they're my facts. I said, you, said, you know, she said it, didn't she? They're her facts. They're her stories. Her interpretations. You know, Nietzsche went quite strong. He said, there are no facts, only interpretations. But there are facts, but they're not independent of our interpretations of them. So we've got to be very careful what we do in relation to apprehending the truth. So the search, Camus said, following Plato, that the search to the light is enough to fill a man's soul. I think that's lovely. The search, the inquiry into the depth of existence. So for Plato, we must go inside ourselves. Dig deep. That's the descent, followed by the ascent, the draw. You know in the laws... The most beautiful image of all. The laws Plato views the person as a puppet with a golden cord attaching to his, from his crown to the epikina, the divine realm, and the steely cord attached to the soul of his feet, dragging him down to Hades. So we're caught in between the metaxi. Life is metaxological. And sometimes when I do philosophy with business people, I, I do these corporate stuff occasionally, I distinguish between the draw and the drive. So what drives you is different and what draws you. The draw is upward, it's the golden cord. What drives us has a different energy around it. Does that make sense? So for Plato, the aim of life is to find out what draws you, not just what drives you, and not what drags you down to Hades, the underworld. It's what draws you up to the light. So he says, down you must go. That's a quote, down you must go. As Augustine said, the way up is that you go first down, in, down and up. In, down and up. That's the sort of the dialectic. And uh, uh, who asked me about meditation? Albert, was it? Oh, Joe. Joe. Um, this is what Plato says. Once you have this conversion of consciousness, you will engage in divine contemplation. And then men will want to, quote, stay up there forever. So they will have eudaimonia, uh, um, um, spiritual joy. Quote, transported to the islands of the blessed, even while still living. So, we will see the truth of the beautiful, we will see the just and the good, and then we will live uh, uh, better than just dreamers, because we will be awake to the truth of things. He says, a lovely quote here, great is the struggle. 
great is the struggle that determines whether we will lead a life of, quote, justice and all arete. Arete is virtue or excellence. That's a, they're lovely quotes, aren't they? Great is the struggle whether we will lead a life of justice and all arete. Remember, Socrates said it is better to suffer injustice than to do it. So Nazi says, kill them all and I'll save more lives and yours. Drop the gun. It's for him. It's nothing to do with you. You cannot commit an evil so that good may come. Uh, and this would be platonic ethics. So philosophy, what is, what's the point of philosophy? It's ordering the soul to the good, the agathon. Plato became, according to Aristotle, good and happy at the same time. That's a quote. It's a great quote from Aristotle about Plato. He became good and happy at the same time. So for Aristotle to be happy is to be good. Virtue leads to eudaimonia. Um, so this identity of goodness and happiness, and again, it's what he means by happiness. If you asked 21st century man, we think happiness is subjective satisfaction. It's not what the Greeks meant. That's the core of the Platonic Gospel. Plato's own soul, it seems to me, to conclude for a few minutes, it seems to me that Plato's own soul must have been flooded by the imminent transcendent absolute. Doesn't make sense otherwise. Because it's, it's not just sort of normal philosophy, really. And then the beautiful Iris Murdoch comes along and she says, in the moral life, the enemy is, quote, the fat, relentless ego. So, but she says, if we go to the cave, we like to sit by the flickering fire. It's warm. It's like a romantic dinner. We don't want to see the other person too clearly. We don't want to see herself too clearly. Uh, but, uh, and, it, and it feels nice and warm and, 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 and cool and everything like that. But we need to move beyond the flickering forms of even the fire and out into the cold light of the sun. The person who perseveres will suddenly see all things in the light of the good. And the only reason he'll want to return to the cave is to drag his philosopher friends out. Um, Iris Murdoch, it is in the capacity to love, that is to see, that the liberation of the soul from fantasy exists. She says we must be good for nothing. Plato pictured the good man as eventually able to look at the sun. So for Plato, the good is the magnetic source of ultimate attraction towards which love naturally moves. If you, I had to give a lecture on um, psychopathy a few weeks ago, serial killers, and everybody's fascinated by them. They are the most boring people imaginable. They have no core. They are absolutely empty inside. They are vacuums, voids of emotion. The really interesting people to be around are saints, are sages. They edify, even with their presence, they bring light into the darkness, and they're extraordinary. So, ignorance, muddle, and fear, Iris says, these are our attachments. Our attachments are strong. So the aim is to be good for nothing, to have no consolation. Because if you get your consolation, you have had your reward. To be good without consolation, without recognition, without reciprocity. She calls this ethics austere. And she, she goes so far as to say, even when a friend hugs you, there must be nothing in it for you. And Levinas said, you shouldn't even remember the colour of their eyes. Because then you've been captured by them. It's austere. She talks about the nakedness and the loneliness of good. It's absolute for nothingness. But we prefer to live in the ego, the small self, which is a place of illusion, 
She says, good is a transcendent reality, means that virtue is the attempt to pierce the veil of selfish consciousness and join the world as it really is. So that is freedom. Freedom is overcoming the self, the ego, I would, I would suggest. Um, the prisoners are encapsulated, encased in ego. The philosopher's soul is free because he lives the bigger reality of the self. Does that make sense? So that's the movement in a way. And good there is sovereign over love. Why? Because love can name something bad. Iris Murdoch says, what goes by the name of love is usually possessive and acquisitive and lascivious. It approximates to the good. And when it does, it almost becomes a picture of holiness. But Plato put good sovereign over every concept. Um, love he pictures as needy and barefoot. Iris says, the mother loving the retarded child, well, these are older words, or loving the tiresome elderly relation. What do we do? She says, the answer can only come from sitting still and being attuned to the good in unconsoled love. She says, I'll end on just a few things here. Um, love is the source of our greatest errors, but it's also the source, pure love is the source of our greatest passion the passion of the soul in its search for the good, the force that joins us to good and joins us to the world through good. Its existence is the unmistakable sign that we are spiritual creatures attracted by excellence and made for the good. And just to finish, what's the, what's the way to get there? For her and for a number of, of people singing from the same platonic hymn sheet, the key is humility rather than hubris. The good man is humble. It's a rare virtue. He is humble because he sees himself as nothing and therefore can see others as everything. And it's in Paul. Insofar as you decrease, Christ increases in Eucharistic consciousness. Simon Vale, another Platonist, tells us that the exposure of the soul to God condemns the selfish part of it, not to suffering, but to death. So the humble person sees the distance between suffering and death. And Iris says, and although he is not by definition the good man, perhaps he is the kind of man who is most likely of all to become good. And that's the point of it all. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs>